Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark LaLiberty, and joining me today is... Pop Pop Corey, who apparently is Corey Alzheimer Knockrinder. I forgot to respond because I can't remember who I am. <laughs> Sad. I hope you get some treatment. Sorry. <laughs> you caught me unaware. <laughs> I was I, I was guiltily clicking between tabs and only half listening to your intro. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm on. Story of my life. On today's episode, we'll cover the latest and massive data breaches out of a telco provider, a massive attack against a cryptocurrency distributed application, and then an update from at least one of Corey's my favorite shows on a topic that all of us can appreciate. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and, uh, I don't know, let's just start talking about the news. Roll on in. Sounds great. So I guess we got to start with one of the big news points from the last week or so. Um, earlier last week, a user on a underground hacking marketplace posted for sale around 30 million records from current and former T-Mobile customers for six Bitcoin, so around $270,000, and claimed to have stolen over 100 million records in total. Uh, so T-Mobile later confirmed that they had identified unauthorized access to the data of 7.8 million current T-Mobile customers and 40 million former uh, prospective customers who had applied for credit with T-Mobile. Uh, so I guess this is like sometimes when you go in to buy a phone, you can do that whole financing option and you have to give them your social security number and driver's license info in order to... Yeah, yeah sure. Typical credit background check. Yeah. yeah. And you pretty much give them everything, right? Yeah. So that they can see if they can loan you money. Makes sense. This data included names, addresses, driver license information, and social security numbers, among other things, uh, not including passwords and PIN numbers, I guess, luckily. A small silver line. But a bit big one. I mean... Again, we can't say enough in these type of breaches, even with the Equifax one, a driver's license and a social security number should never be a strong validator of identity. Uh, maybe the ID should be on a driver's license, but the number itself and the social security number, they were not made to be authentication tokens. They were just made to be numbers assigned to us. And yet it's important to point out driver's license numbers and social security numbers are often used as strong measures of identity validation. So no passwords, but still some pretty, you know, unlike the name, the address, and the email, which you and I have argued over and over is pretty much public info at this point anyways, the driver's license number and the social security number make it a little more concerning, right, than, it is than the like, average PII leak. I want to talk about social security numbers for a second. I've, we've talked about it a few times, but it is genuinely one of the dumbest systems we haven't fixed. Uh, well, I, 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 I wouldn't say that. I mean, I, I, I would say it's the dumbest... I would say it was never made to be a validator of identity, exactly. Uh, but we're using it that way. So the system that is the system uh, it, using it, it, it the, as ID. Yeah, using it as ID is the dumbest thing we're doing. And if we really want social securities to act as ID, then it's a dumb system because it wasn't designed for that. So totally agree with you on that. And like, yeah. I mean, this is just another forty million social security numbers that'll. I mean, they're for sale right now, but as with most breaches, it will eventually show up for free on the dark web. To be honest, to the uh, other than the 
people that were still technically not adults when Equifax happened, I would assume all of those 40 million are already leaked, attached to name social security numbers from Equifax. Because let's face it, Equifax has already leaked just about every adult U.S. social security number. So... But but like you like we both have said, it's unfortunately even though it should be validating information, it is. And I would say the driver's license number is stupid that way too. By the way, a physical license, I'm not a physical license as picture ID. That's a pretty strong validation factor. It has a picture on it. But online, obviously, there's no picture. It's just a driver's license. But unfortunately, some places use driver's license. If they can't look at your driver's license, they use things like the number as an identity validator. And it, it's equally stupid to use a driver license number to validate someone if it's not attached to a picture. But even like pictures, like some places like cryptocurrency exchanges will force you to scan your ID and upload it. And even cyber criminals are starting to abuse that now too, where they will go social engineer oh God, some that... other random person, trick them into giving up like a picture of their ID, like usually some by some sort of like romance scam. And then they use that picture to open a cryptocurrency exchange uh, account yeah. under their name and use that to, as they um, launder cryptocurrency into cash out of it, basically. That is horrible. I mean, and then it becomes much more strong factor because you have both the number and the, you, I mean, you literally have a picture of the driver's license. There are watermarks and other things meant, and, and nowadays most driver's license should have chips on them too. But yeah, I, I, I think we're both agreeing. Uh, it's not passwords, it's not credit cards, but the fact that there are driver's license numbers and social security numbers, those are two higher than average value PII targets for bad guys. Names and addresses and phone numbers, it sucks when they're leaked, but it's happened so many times, I think we're used to that being public. And the, the amount of identity theft you can do with that and nothing else is limited. But with the social security, it makes this one a little higher so, risk. Than in normal. response, T-Mobile is offering customers two years, two whole years of identity theft protection, uh, and instructing all customers to change their PIN numbers and passwords, even those that, even though those haven't been accessed. I want to say, like, I feel like at this point, if you're responsible for a breach of social security numbers, it should be lifetime. Uh, uh, identity theft protection. Like two years is not a long time in the grand scheme of things. Those are now. I was going to say that they even have to think about their reaction because they've had so many <laughs> leaks already that they probably had a plan <laughs> yeah. for exactly how many years and how to do this before it even happened. Oh, I, by the way, I, I agree with you in concept, but the reality is I would rather peep the social security is not is public. As I pointed out, with Equifax, other than the people who were 16 at the time or whatever, your social security number is out there. So I think the best fix for this beyond even credit monitoring is no freaking agency, no credit bureaus, no a social security number should be a valueless piece of information for our identity. And they should use much stronger means to identify anyone that's trying to open accounts under an identity. So, you know, while yes, the, the idea that T-Mobile, they have leaked these numbers forever, but to be honest, we live in a world where social security numbers shouldn't matter anymore uh, as an identifier because they were never meant to be one. And now they're so leaked that the real fix is it shouldn't hurt us that these numbers are out there because we have much stronger identity validators that we have in use. 
whatever those I, I agree mean, that is we know what they the should ideal be solution but uh, but man there haven't yeah. even been any proposals to get to that ideal point like it seems like we're just kind of you know kicking the can down the road and oh here's more identity theft protection so you can see as people steal your identity which i mean okay it, ignorance is not great so seeing it is better than ignorance but it's not a real protection it's just a an alert when it happens kind of thing I think the truth is, I, I think every human needs to leave with, live with all of their credit locked yeah. and frozen until they need it, uh, because no one should be, you should have a lock on all the time, and the real protection is that should be subsidized. People like, uh, was it TransUnion, Equifax, and what's the other one, Experian? Uh, they shouldn't be able to charge you to turn that on and off. It should be an absolutely good free news is service. they don't. Ah, uh, they 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 offer limited numbers of it on and off, but I can tell you there's some fine. Uh, print I could have sworn at the end of the Equifax thing, one of the fallouts was it has to be free now, but maybe it's just limited. They 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 open it up with for sure for some of that, but there were some limits okay. that I remember. And uh, but yes, uh, because again. Uh, we're not going to be able to fix social security numbers. They're out there. Uh, so one other point I wanted to bring up, though, like, so these were also 40 million former prospective customers. Now, we don't know how long ago these were. Maybe 40 million people applied last week and they just hadn't cleared out the cache data from that. But I'm willing to bet that it was from significantly longer than that to have 40 million records like. OK, so I can kind of understand keeping current customer data because they are current customers and maybe further down the line, they want to like add another line. And instead of re-asking for their social security number, you just make it easy. But I mean, for former like at what point do you have to delete data from people that you are like PII, like social security numbers and IDs from people that are not even your customers like GDPR solved this. If you don't have a business case to keep it, you are required to delete it. Obviously, T-Mobile is an American company dealing primarily with Americans and not Europeans, so they don't have to follow that. But this is like one of the shining examples for why GDPR-like laws are important. That data data should not have existed. And then why we uh, we, uh, we should check the California one too. But uh, while I don't think our prediction will entirely hit, we were hoping to see more law, uh, states do privacy laws. California does have a privacy law that's closer to GDPR. And it might actually have, a, well, I'll have to check. I don't know for sure, but it might have that. But I agree with you. And I, and mostly it's never going to happen until it's regulated. Because, I mean, every privacy and security person will say, you should delete it. You should delete any data you're not using that's a customer's, especially if it's, you know, personally identify, identifying, i.e. it's confidential, sensitive, and has value. If they're not your customer, you don't need the, the data for a service you're providing any longer. It should be gone. Why is no one going to do that? Because they're capitalist businesses that are trying to find new profit centers. And they can do all kinds of analytics if they have data on you. They have the potential to resell that data. I mean, hopefully they had EULAs that say they won't. But did you read the fine print before you signed up to see if you could get a subsidized T-Mobile phone or some sort of loan? So, I mean, the reason they're not doing it is because uh, Business 101 is everyone wants all the data they can get on everybody to try to make more and more profit from you, whether it's directly through marketing to you and analytics on you or whether it's selling as an alternate source of revenue. So uh, 
I don't, <laughs> I, I, a hundred percent think from a security perspective and a privacy perspective, it's silly, but you're not going to get businesses to just drop something that's a potential revenue generator for them unless it's regulated and unless someone says, Hey, you're okay to make revenue, but you can't really screw people and, and mess up their privacy, especially if you can't protect the data to make revenue. So I, I fear this, I guess I'm wearing pop, pop, Corey cynical hat right now. I fear that unless we get the GDPR law for federally or for all our states, uh, this best practice, it's pretty much common best practice not to hold any sensitive external data that you don't need. But are people going to follow it when uh, machine learning can tell you all kinds of neat information about the buying patterns of a prospective customer? Yeah. So basically, this boils down to save us, California. You're all <laughs> yeah, or I mean, the good news is when it comes to regulations, like typically what starts in California ends on a federal level, uh, even if it's just de facto in that in order to comply with California's massive market, you basically, it, it doesn't make sense to have two different products. And so you just generate it to comply with that. So yeah. to give an idea of the mandatory data dis uh, breach disclosure laws that they started in states like California and now are in all states. So eventually, I mean, we predicted it, I think for this year. So we, we both believe it will happen eventually. Uh, hopefully, we'll get there quicker, sooner than later. Yep. And until then, like speaking as a pretty ticked off T-Mobile customer right now, I I really hope these breaches come to an end and they learn how to keep control of their data because it has been one after another. But I'm telling you, it's a pain in the butt when you want to refinance, but freeze everything. That's what man. I've been doing. If you if you yeah, I know you have. I was talking to our audience. Uh, it's it's the best way. It it, keep, it allows me to sleep at night because even I can't open an account right now until I go through all the services and and go through my authentication to unlock yep. them. The t extra ten minutes it takes for the you to do that. The sucky thing is that you have to do all three yeah. of them though, and uh, make sure it's these are things you don't use all the time. So when you have passwords and or backup multi-factor tokens, make sure to store them because you might be in a situation in life where you're not taking out credit for ten years. But then 10 years from now, you need to unlock all three of them to <laughs> do a big refinance or something. And you might take longer than you want to unlock yes, them. Yes, but that extra 10 minutes of having to unlock it before, you know, that once every couple of years open a new account thing is 100% worth being able to sleep at night from I agree. knowing someone isn't using your info to do it. So moving on now, um, if you pay attention to the cryptocurrency circles, you may have heard about this story we're about to talk about. If you don't, you honestly might not have heard about it. Um, despite it being one of the largest cryptocurrency thefts in history. So just about a week and a half ago, a hacker stole $600 million worth of various cryptocurrency tokens from a cross-chain transaction organization called Poly Network. Uh, so there's a lot to unpack here. As with many blockchain things and cryptocurrency topics, there's generally some, uh, some things we want to define first before jumping into the hack itself. And I guess in order to talk about this one, first, we should talk about cryptocurrency tokens. Uh, so a token is basically just something that's traded on a blockchain, like Ethereum. Uh, so it differs from Bitcoin, where with Bitcoin, it's just a traditional ledger of financial transactions, literally like 
You can think of it as my bank account, Corey's bank account. I'm sending him 10 bucks. That's now on the ledger. Yeah. And that is all you can do with Bitcoin. And we talked about this in a past episode or one types of these when we talked about NFT because the NFT is just one such token. Exactly. Right? So with Ethereum and similar uh, blockchains, they're not just a ledger of transactions. They're actually a fully distributed computer, basically, that allows you to run programs and applications on the blockchain. Um, and a common application is to set up one of these tokens which is basically like a third-party coin that then exists on the Ethereum blockchain. And it's still backed by that whole immutability thing where the transaction now, instead of it being I'm sending Corey $10 in Ethereum cryptocurrency, it's using this application thing, I'm sending him 10 of these tokens. And you're right, they've really taken off with these... I. I Man, I'm probably going to get flack for it, but these really stupid NFTs lately. Well, I'm not, uh, I'm, yeah, where... there's you, by the way, I, I didn't mean to disparage all tokens. Uh, a a non fungible nature of a token could be useful. I just think the usage of NFTs, NFTs are so is, dumb. Uh, is yes. silly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but when it comes to transferring these tokens around on a blockchain technology like Ethereum, like you still use Ether, the Ethereum coin, in order to pay transaction fees. Um, but the transactions themselves are really just calling functions in these token smart contracts. And a smart contract, it's basically just a program that exists on the blockchain. In Ethereum, they call them a smart contract. I don't It's just the name they gave it. Uh, usually, they're written in a language called uh, Solidity, which is then compiled into bytecode and published onto the blockchain. Um, some more things about contracts you'll need to know before we talk about the hack. Uh, so they have owners, which is basically the wallet address that published it. So when I go deploy a smart contract, that contract's owner is now my cryptocurrency's public key. And you can use that information then to restrict certain functions within this program from being called by other people. So I could have a smart contract out there that's like a bank account where anyone on the Ethereum blockchain can call the add funds function. And when you call that um, with like an amount, it then creates a key value pair for your wallet address and the funds that you sent into the smart contract and just notes that, okay, of our smart contract funds that we have, these 10 coins are assigned to Mark's wallet. So then somewhere down the line, you can call the remove funds function, which will then deduct those that share from their smart contract wallet and send it back to yours. Uh, meanwhile, like you might have ones that are restricted uh, to just the owner of the function or of the contract. Uh, things like maybe uh, if you want to run an update for the contract and give it more functionality, maybe you keep that update function locked to just the owner. Uh, maybe you actually have a set of administrator accounts on there that can go in and make changes and to make changes to that list of administrators, only the owner can do it. Uh, but the bottom line is these are all kind of built into this technology to allow anyone to interact with it while still restricting some of the interactions to just who deployed the contract. Um, so next topic is cross-chain cross chain transactions. Uh, so there are actually like there's hundreds or thousands of blockchains out there. There's Bitcoin, that's a blockchain tech. There's Ethereum, uh, which is the second most popular one. And then there's a whole bunch of other ones that are really similar to Ethereum, potentially even using the exact same like code behind the scenes, but just maintained on a separate set of nodes. Uh, for example, like Binance, it's a really popular, uh, one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges. They actually run their own Ethereum-like blockchain to facilitate transactions behind the scenes. Uh, Heco is another one. 
that's just about identical to Ethereum, um, but with a few changes that make it a little cheaper to use and a little quicker to use for adding blocks. And you can kind of see where this is going. By the way, it's no no wonder because these these blockchain technologies are essentially on a technology level open source. So Ethereum shares how it works and anyone can make kind of their own version with slight changes. Right? Exactly. And like the value of the cryptocurrency running the blockchain is really it boils down to how many people use it and then just the value they assign to it. Like if we're going to go down this path, Bitcoin in reality doesn't have a whole lot of value. It's not super great for anything other than storing funds. And as soon as people decide they don't want to store their funds in it, it loses its value. It's too slow. And for... by the way, it's a mix of how many people use it, both because of the perceived value enough people, use, but also be the whole point of decentralized is you are part of the uh, the people participating. You know, all blockchains are different. Some are mining you know, the people participating in that are actually supporting the infrastructure to do all this, essentially. I guess there are some more centralized ones or ones that might have servers. Yep. In fact, there was one. Yeah. Uh, crap. Wow. I can't remember the name off the top of my head. Uh, but there was one relatively recently that actually just got nailed by the uh, U.S. Justice Department because it was too centralized. And the SEC basically said... It was the equivalent of selling unlicensed uh, stocks and bonds or whatever, and they got just, wow. they're currently, I believe, <laughs> still going through the court process for it. But anyways, like there are a ton of these different blockchain technologies exist, some with similarities to each other, and a cross-chain, and sometimes like people will want to convert tokens from one chain into like an equivalent value of tokens on another chain. Like let's say I've got 10 Ethereum, and I want to convert that into whatever 100,000 on the the Binance network in order to interact with that network then and in reality so let's be honest let, let's be honest I, I mean the legitimate use case for this is store number one uses Bitcoin but store number two uses Binance and I have to get some of my Bitcoin to Binance in order to do something yeah but let, let's be honest, uh, since there is no standard for this, and while well, you can buy plenty of stuff with certain cryptocurrencies, it really is an unregulated stock market. People are making <laughs> bets by buying and selling. The only point these cross-exchange happen is people transferring one to the other to sell it, you know, when one's going up and one is going down. It, in my opinion, I'm, I'm being, again, cynical, cynical pop, pop corny, but this is really a bullshit. Ponzi scheme uh, stock market right now that holds no real value as a stable currency that anyone can use around the world for anything meaningful. Exactly. Sorry, all you cryptocurrency haters, you can send your hate email to at adept on Twitter. Leave X Zorro alone because. So, I mean, I do agree with you on principle, uh, but. <laughs> Uh, I'm being facetious. Like, I, I think there's value to this and that eventually there will be a stable coin. But I'm being facetious right now on purpose. <laughs> and it's beyond just the the coin itself when you look at technologies like Ethereum. Like you can argue about the the quality of the value it's providing, but like there are actual like applications that run on it. Like CryptoKitties, sure. a stupid yeah. little fun collecting game where in order to interact with that, you need Ethereum, which means you might need to convert, say, your Bitcoin or something into Ethereum in order to interact with to it. use and the if application you want, yeah yeah and if that you don't want sense. to just straight up cash out to us dollars and then use those us dollars to buy the other token or coin or whatever on that other blockchain you would use one of these cross-chain transactions and one of these applications that facilitates that in order to give them some of your ethereum on the ethereum blockchain and then take some mark coin or whatever on the the mark coin blockchain instead 
By the way, to be released for a coin IPO soon, contact Mark for details. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, have, I want nothing to do with any of that. I feel like it's just a house of cards ready to fall down. Anyways, uh, enough financial advice from Mark and Corey. Um, so this kind of circles us back to then Poly Network. So Poly Network is they facilitate these cross-chain transactions by maintaining smart contracts on multiple different blockchains that kind of sync with each other. And on each of these smart contracts, they've got a store of funds, so like 100 million Ethereum on the Ethereum contract, 100 million whatever Bezos bucks on the Amazon. Are you contract. making up money, by the way? 100 million Ethereum would be pretty nice to own. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but they maintain these stores of funds. So then when they receive a request on one of these blockchains through their application of all these smart contracts, they can sync it up and then release some funds to a destination wallet on that other uh, contract, basically. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes in it. They've got dozens, if not hundreds, of smart contracts that facilitate all this. Uh, but just this long story short, you can issue a transaction on one chain through their smart contract, and ultimately you'll get coins out or tokens or whatever out on the other blockchain from that blockchain smart contract. Um, so... Now, the attack against Poly Network, it was actually a pretty dang sophisticated attack. Like, I, I, I would take me a while to try and explain it in detail, and I would not be able to do it in a way that anyone would understand unless they had some working knowledge. Of not only contracts. would you have to understand everything that Mark does about Ethereum smart contracts in general, you'd have to understand all the very custom specific smart contracts that Poly Network wrote in order to provide their cross chain. Is that essentially? Exactly. And it but, gets down to details and their their smart contracts themselves. It's honestly like I'll make sure I'll I found an article that kind of goes through it as well too, um, where yeah, you might be able to follow along uh, or at least Google your way to victory. Um, but like at a very basic level, so the Poly Network system is broken up into multiple smart contracts on the Ethereum blockchain, and then multiple on other ones, and so on and so forth. And these smart contracts maintain a list of wallet addresses, so public keys, because a cryptocurrency wallet is literally just a private and public key pair. Uh, they maintain a list of wallet addresses that are allowed to validate transactions and unlock funds. So through all of this syncing, one of the steps is they've got this list of addresses. Uh, and if one of those says, yep, this is a correct transaction, they will then ultimately unlock funds and send them to whatever that transaction's destination is. Now, there's a function in there uh, in that contract that modifies the list of keys. Uh, this makes sense. Like you might want to retire one of your old wallets and like use a new one or something. Maybe you need to expand the number of ones that can interface with this. So you need to add more like it makes sense to have that function in there. And understandably, it's protected with that owner only designator, which means only the owner of that smart contract, that address that originally deployed it can then make a change to that function. This is pretty common. Again, most of these contracts will have some form of restricted access in them. So skipping all the super complex details in this, the hacker basically found a way uh, through a different function in this contract uh, that takes in a method, so a function, as one of its parameters that the attacker has under the control. So among the other parameters in there, they can say, call this function kind of thing. And there's some validation that goes on behind the scenes there. Um, but to like reduce the complexity again, in order to determine what function it's going to call in there, the smart contract, like I guess the Ethereum system itself, basically takes a hash of whatever was put in there 
and compares the first four bytes of that hash with all of the other first four bytes of all the defined functions in the smart contract. And so if it hits a match, then that is the function that it calls. So the attacker couldn't just straight up put in uh, the name of like our change uh, owner wallet address, whatever. They weren't allowed to do that. But they what they did was they basically generated a hash collision instead where they had like a random function name with the same parameters where when you hash it, the first four bytes were the exact same as the first four bytes of this protected function of being able to change the addresses that can then validate transactions. So that was mistake. Any clue one. why they only did the first four bytes instead of more? I'm I'm only going to ask because obviously I like maybe it's a speed thing, but if they used more of the hash rather than the first four bytes, I guess it would be harder and harder for an attacker to to make a valid collision, right? I. I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, so they were able to do that, uh, create a collision with just some randomly named function and basically insert then their, or at least a wallet address under their control into this list of now validators, basically. And then they were able to just drain the smart contracts funds by validating bogus uh, cross-chain transactions saying, yep, time to distribute 300 million Ethereum or time to distribute... 2000 dogecoin or whatever all this is so it ended up being 600 million dollars in various tokens the bulk of it was ethereum but then across all these other chains they drained the funds out of there too and what happened after that was honestly kind of nuts um so i found out about it after one of our analysts posts to our chat thread uh, this tweet that poly network sent out that was just like i mean it was kind of sad it was this like a poorly worded statement of basically pleading with the un unidentified hacker to return the funds. They were saying this would be considered a major economic crime and you're going to be pursued no matter what country you're in kind of thing. And I don't know. I, I felt like that wasn't well thought out before they put that out there. Um, but interesting. It also, enough, it, it, it shouldn't have worked, right? I mean, if this was our evil, I doubt they would have gotten any money back. No. Not that our evil is doing cryptocurrency attacks when ransomware is working, but you know what I mean. I mean... Uh, any real criminal actor, especially protected by certain safe havens, probably wouldn't would just laugh at that. Yeah. So hmm, six hundred million dollars, or be a good guy. I wonder. It's, but I mean, six hundred million dollars is a large amount of money. Like yeah, I would yeah, not yeah. actively seek that out, but I would have. I mean, I'm. I'm going to be honest. I would have a a crisis of morals if that somehow ended up like under my possession or <laughs> bank account. Yeah. yeah. I. It would be but, tough. Um, but, I, I I think you're right to admit. I think it's it's a ton of money. Yeah. Uh, so it turns out though, the attacker then actually put out a statement. Again, pretty poorly worded to the point where I'm pretty sure they're like a like a teenager potentially. Um, basically saying they're a white hat hacker and they drained all the funds so that instead of just reporting the flaw to protect it against some rogue developer at Poly Network from draining the funds uh. themselves once they found out. Um, now that doesn't explain why the attacker actually tried to launder a lot of the funds through other cryptocurrencies. Like they converted some of it into Monero. They converted. Most it could of the... have been exactly what you said, though. Like this crisis of more ethics and morals, where uh, uh, let's call him a gray hat or white hat researcher who didn't expect it to work, but it did work, maybe, and 
but then realized, wow, I could get away with it. So maybe, you know, I, I maybe mean, this isn't the could first explain time this starting to launder, but turning it around. The other thing I was going to say is I, I can also kind of believe like the, the idea that I wanted to do it so the the in this case, it's the across uh, transaction exchange, not an exchange. But there's been a lot of thoughts that some of the big exchange hacks Mount Gox were carried out by the actual insiders just wanting to take the money. So to some extent, you can almost believe him, the hacker, he or she too, right? There, yeah. That so... there, there is a risk that if the insiders, oh, I suddenly know a vulnerability where I could take the money from all our customers with a, a, a valid excuse for why it was a hack. That there, yes, there is a precedent for this. Like I can't remember exactly which platform or application it was, but about three years ago, there was another really big, um, like distributed finance application on Ethereum with hundreds of millions of dollars in it, and a criminal, like a malicious hacker, straight up black hat, um, went in and started draining the funds out of it through a vulnerability they found. Um, but they were doing it manually like they were you could see like it, it was only one transaction every like minute or so as they set in the parameters and exploited this i think it was like a re-entry vulnerability in one of the contracts um and as this was happening other researchers then saw oh crap something's going on they found the same flaw and they automated it to drain all the funds out of there under to an account under their control and then worked to get the money back to the original owner so yes that has happened previously of people hacking and stealing all the money to keep it safe until it's fixed and then returning it. This one was, I mean, I think it was a crisis of morals of a started laundering it and then thought, eh, maybe. They've also been pretty dang slow on returning it, uh, but they have, as of right now, returned all of the Ethereum. It took a long time. They did some pretty weird transactions to do it, uh, but they've at least returned the Ethereum and I believe all of the altcoins they've converted into Ethereum, but not 100% of the funds in total yet. Um, it gets even weirder. So Poly Network put out a statement uh, basically praising the hacker now, saying that they're going to give them a $500,000 reward and they offered them the role of their, as their chief of security, which, I mean, this kind of smells like the 2004 when Valve got hacked and someone stole Half-Life 2's source code and they offered them a job just to try and arrest them. Speaking of Valve, the cake is a lie. Don't fall for the cake. Exactly. The cake is a lie. Um, so, I mean, the whole thing is just, it's weird. Like, the it felt like a little unprofessional from the Poly Network side, like how they handled it. And for that amount of, or lack of professionalism, and something holding $600 million is basically, like, that is the perfect shining example of the current cryptocurrency ecosystem. Uh, there's huge amounts of money getting thrown around here. Like they didn't have a bug bounty program at all before launching this. Like there isn't any security testing going on with these massive amounts of money being transitioned around with NFTs and just cryptocurrency and all these altcoins and stuff. That's why, by the way. So first of all, I want to say I, I'm I'm skeptical a lot of using cryptocurrency today for anything real. But I think everyone that's working on cryptocurrency and blockchain right now are pioneers. Tech technologically, they're on the right track. And this whole pioneering period of doing this, this experimentation that's full of failures left and right, is good. 
And so as disparaging as I might seem talking about currently, you know, people trying to make any real money or trying to really consider this for fiat currency right now, I think that's crazy. I actually think this is just the pioneering period on the birth of a technology that will blow up. But what I'm getting at is this is the pioneering period. This is the Wild West. You know, like you just said, the complexity, there's no standards. The complexity is crazy. The fact that you even need these cross, you know, these cross currency transactions, these cross chain transactions just proves that there's way too many of these altcoins out there. And, and, and it's not really time to use this for any serious financial stuff yet. I uh, agree 100%. Yeah. Like my opinion is that like blockchain technology is massively useful. It has uses, it will be around. Technology like Ethereum probably has uses as well. Absolutely. Um, I think even like you said- And like, all the work being done on this stuff that I'm making fun of as far as using it for real work is the work that's needed. All these failures and learnings are what's going to get us to the one that works one day and is standardized upon. Yeah. And like but I think yeah. financial transactions on the blockchain are the future. Like it will at some point, there will be some usable form of quick, uh, quickly validated financial transactions. But and stable, think, stable currencies too. I don't yep, think I agree. any of the current blockchain technologies are going to be it. And that is why I personally don't see it as a quote unquote investment. Like it's a short term speculation of you get in, try and make money and then get out before the thing crashes and gets replaced by the next big one. Yeah. Uh, anyway. But at the same time, I, 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 it, it, we're also saying we don't like I think all the pioneering done and the, the stuff done by crypto people excited about cryptocurrency, you legitimately should be as a technology as long as you understand that. Uh, without this pioneering period, we're never going to get to the one that works. Yeah. But in the meantime, though, like there is, especially with these like cross-chain transactions, there's a lot of complexity going on in these that isn't getting enough security attention. And I have a feeling that $600 million, while this is one of the biggest in recent memory, is not going to be the last of no. these giant heists. Well, we've seen so many already. Yeah. Anyways, buy Do Dogecoin. Um, moving on to our last To the story. moon! Yes, exactly. Sorry. Uh, so two Sundays ago now, uh, if you watched the uh, the episode then of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, you would have seen him run an episode with the main story about ransomware. And this like caught just about everyone I work with's attention. We'll pause because... just in case we have weird, weird viewers. Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, it's available on HBO, so you can get on HBO now. But if you don't know what we're talking at, at least look up Last Week Tonight ransomware on YouTube. They've... Uh... Uh, they're pretty generous with at least showing the main segment of the show. But John Oliver is a comedian. You probably know him before he had his own shows. I think he's part of The Daily Show, right? So most of you probably know him. Uh, we obviously love mixed political listeners. He, I will admit, he's a very uh, liberal-sided person. He is probably much more left than he is right in general. Uh, I know a lot of folks have issues with uh, British. He's now a U.S. citizen, by the way, but it was a British citizen commenting on the, the United States government. But it is an extremely funny show. This is a very non-political segment, so we encourage you wa to watch it even if you're not necessarily a typical John Oliver viewer. Yeah. Uh, this one, I will say, is his least political segment. I yeah, think there's nothing. Well, 
I guess there's one or there's two jokes. We'll get to it. It, uh, <laughs> yeah. But for the most part, this is cybersecurity really should be apolitical. Yep. Um, so overall, though, like I watched the episode. I thought it was a really excellent high level overview of this issue that's really plaguing our industry. Like he cited basically ransomware payments quadrupling in just the last year. Uh, hitting many vulnerable industries like healthcare, like these things that you and I and probably everyone that's listening right now are well aware of. But like for other folks that just watch shows like tonight, last week tonight with John Oliver, they might not be fully aware of exactly what's going on right now with ransomware. If you have non-technical friends that you want to understand this, like everything covered in the show is something me and Marcus talked about in a podcast in the last few years, I believe. Uh, the, I, he, by the way, he does it funny. So even if you know it all, it's still a pleasure to watch because he makes it kind of hilarious. But but we live and breathe this stuff. So you know, if your mom or dad or grandfather wants to know about this or grandmother, like you say, it's a nice high level overview and understanding. Yeah, you pointed out a lot of the important points like talked about the threat of double extortion with these, talked about the risk of IoT ransomware, uh, highlighting a, a chastity belt vulnerability that I think actually we saw the presenter talk about at DEF CON two years ago, maybe. At least I did. Yeah. Um, and by uh, the way, I, uh, uh, I think we said it in the past podcast, but while I think he used a technically different vulnerability in a different one, uh, we covered the anal plug. <laughs> or yeah. we, we, we covered some of these crazy sex toy yep. hacks uh talked about ransomware as a service so they showed a 60 minutes interview with tom pace the ceo of silence basically walking through a ransomware attack i think that was filmed after the colonial pipeline one i'm trying to remember Probably. this would have been back in february when i saw it so maybe a different one but there's too many of these giant ransomware attacks but, honestly. but for example for that you know what what john oliver's show really made apparent is why does ransomware as a service matter you've heard us talk about this but it's the point is it's lowered the bar. It's lowered the technical bar. Now any old criminal can get in it easy. So really the whole premise of it, and we'll continue to tell some of the stuff he's talked about, was he had three big things that happened that has made ransomware blow up. And of course, ransomware as a service was one of those things. When you don't have to be sophisticated to make really strong ransomware, you can just you don't even have to buy it on the underground. You don't even have to put up money. You just have to give away some of your ransom profits. It it lo it makes it a lot easier for non-technical cyber criminals to get into yep. this business. Um, talked about the unwritten or at least unspoken rule in Russia, basically, that you are safe from prosecution there as long as you don't impact actual Russians. Although we've spoke about that rule a number of times, also yeah. called safe safe havens, which is another reason ransomware is succeeding. Yep. If authorities can't get to the criminals, even when we know where they are, that's a problem. I mean, come on, they're they're on YouTube doing uh, what's it called? Uh, circles donuts, donuts with their Lamborghinis. What are those kids and... call them? Circles with their cars. Back back in my day, I just rode around on my bicycle. <laughs> My um, grandpa only had one wheel on his bicycle. It is pretty nuts. They showed one of these people that were associated with uh, one of the ransomware gangs driving around in a Lamborghini with a license plate that read thief. Thief. Yeah. Um, and then he talked about just uh, cryptocurrency as a whole and its ability to fuel this and specifically like privacy focused cryptocurrency like Monero, where even their advertisements are pretty obvious of what they're advertising. Yeah. 
Like, hey, that, you can that, do I, I had never watched that, even though you and I have talked about how Monero actually makes it even harder to track transactions in typical public ledgers. I had not seen that commercial. And I swear to God, some of the, the little cute uh, pictures of the customer with the sunglasses is pretty much the icon for a, a thief or hacker. It's... Uh, <laughs> You know, they, 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 they talked about privacy and stuff, but the commercial was saying, hey, you want to hide from federal governments and not pay taxes and steal money without people finding out? Come get Monero is <laughs> exactly. what, that's not what the voiceover of the commercial says, but that is what the graphics looked like to me. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, as with most of his segments like this, it wasn't just all about explaining the issue. He did offer, like, advice basically for what we should do to fix it. And before he gave his advice, he showed a, some advice of some other folks. Uh, one of them was from uh, everyone's favorite politician, Newt Gingrich, who uh, I had not seen him say this, but I did not. I had not heard it either. Suggesting the death penalty with a provision that the president can order the killing of anyone overseas that is caught participating in ransomware, which I mean, I hate ransomware. I hate the fallout of it. I think it's insane that they're targeting hospitals i think the death penalty is a little bit strong for that one or more specifically the death penalty where you're doing a a black op in russia Wrong strike to, to assassinate a our evil gang member i mean that might stop a <laughs> one ransomware but you'll probably start an international world war yeah I, I don't think the, the solution is that extreme. On the other end, though, he showed the Deputy National Security Advisor for the Cyber and Emergency Technology team, I guess, who heavily suggested that Colonial yeah. Pipeline pay the ransom in their case. She, by the way, she, in the show, John Oliver made it pretty clear that he thought his interpretation of his words was you should pay. But uh, I, she did not say you should pay. She was She really walked around the issue. To be honest, I could have interpreted the same way as us saying, we don't think you should pay, which, by the way, I, I don't think you should pay. You've heard me say that before. But we realize there's extenuating circumstances. So, But either way, I, I think his point was trying to show two ends of the spectrum. Just pay the criminals to murder the criminals in other countries. <laughs> yes. Uh, but in the end, like he gave three tips that are basically like, exact tips that we give every time we talk about ransomware and they are sound like the first one was very strongly enable multi-factor authentication everywhere period that makes sense like more often than not a lot of these attacks start with compromised credentials and if you stop them from being able to use those compromised credentials you're pretty safe at that point the second tip was another really basic one that still people don't follow and that's keeping your computers up to date like attackers go after low-hanging fruit, and if your computer's unpatched and they can hit a unpatched flaw, game over. And then don't click suspicious emails. So again, try to avoid phishing emails. These are pr three pretty simple tips, but I mean, hopefully to the non-technical folks that walk th watch this show, like maybe they'll actually resonate and follow through with them. The hardest tip there is MFA, and nowadays MFA is really simple. And it, it seems weird because yes, for an organization, Mark and I also talk about advanced malware controls and lots of more advanced technical things that can help. But ultimately, as far when you're looking at return and investment, email security awareness training, which translates to getting more people not to click, and patching are going to do more than even fancy EDR at blocking most ransomware. You only need fancy EDR 
the time when a user makes a mistake. So these other things, or the time when there's an open vulnerability, and usually zero day is very rare. So as simple as the tips sound, they actually have the highest return on investment, as, as we said before, so we totally agree. Yeah, and he even noted that these are really basic things to do, but his like ending quote I thought was the perfect explanation for it, and that said, quote, in a world where most people's doors are unlocked and wide open, just locking your door might be a good deterrent here, which is right. That's the exact way yeah. to look at it. I prefer the way I say it, which is if you're in the forest with a bear, you don't have to learn how to outrun the bear. You have to learn how to outrun your friend. Lock your door <laughs> instead of his. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, but it's the same go concept. leak their password on the, the underground. The bare minimum is enough to beat. <laughs> yeah, but I mean... I'm glad that this is making like national attention now, like shows like last week tonight are picking this stuff up. Like, I mean, we've seen the news. For protection, yeah. But what's what blows me away, this is a problem. We are, and I, by, by we, I say collectively, because I think there's lots of controls WatchGuard has that can help you, but we collectively are losing this war. So it's almost sad that it's had, it's making mainstream only because it's gotten so big. So I agree with you. I love that it is because it's giving normal people an opportunity to help. And we've said before, everyone's security matters, raising all boats getting any everyone fixing someone else's ability to not click on an email will make you more secure too but the flip side of that is the fact that it's gone mainstream just shows how bad the problem has become yeah so if you haven't seen it we'll toss a link to the youtube uh, main event video of this i know at least our american viewers will be able to see it you might be out of luck if you're overseas but definitely check it out and yeah i yeah. don't know i will Set say really really quick uh, just because, you know, to go with the theme of ransomware and the fact that it's gotten so big, I'll only take a minute because we're already over 40 or so. But even today, brand new breaking news just an hour ago. By the time uh, you hear this, it'll probably be four days later. Uh, but in Brazil, a big popular, you know, men and women's clothing store chain, I, I, I think they would pronounce it Lojas Henner. Uh, a dumb American like me might say Lojas Renner, but it's a bit very popular clothing store in Brazil. Uh, they apparently, according to the hack, a Brazilian publication, have been hit by ransomware, and it's gotten into their entire data data center. According to you know, I don't think Lojas has uh, or Lojas Henner has responded much publicly yet, but according to all the rumors and the tweets going out. Uh, it's a pretty big attack that has gotten a ton of sensitive information and is likely going to ask for a pretty big ransom. And speaking of Brazilian ransomware, this is just a few days after the Brazilian news talked about how their national treasury was hit with ransomware attacks. So just a little breaking news to end it, but ransomware is definitely a serious enough a problem that it it needs to be mainstream. It just never ends, does it? Well, let's make it end. You know what would help? Not Stop paying. paying. <laughs> Jinx. You owe me a Bitcoin. <laughs> Damn, that's more expensive than a Coke. I prefer Pop Pop Cory days where I just had to buy you a soda. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at X-O-R-R-O -R -R -O underscore. Corey is at Secadept. 
and the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.